This is Friends or Fiends. Octavia was sitting by his high-frequency ham radio on a cold day in mid-1984 when his radio receiver picked up a strange message. Its source was hundreds of kilometers to the south, a ship named the Mightless Two, and the message itself was a distress signal. The ship was captained by a man named Alberto, and was a research vessel set out by the University of Chile's Oceanography Department and was currently sailing through the Patagonian fjords to the far northern town of Iquique. The ship had been sailing through the dark blue waters of the Darwin Channel in the vicinity of the Midahues Lighthouse when a strange object descended on the ship. The object had a luminous glow and followed the ship from the air for quite a while before it began to approach. As it did, the Mytilus II began to experience problems all throughout their electrical equipment. The object emitted a great amount of undescribed energy. It was said to have caused the sailors on the vessel considerable amounts of hair loss, which I'd like to note is a common feature of radiation poisoning. Whatever the nature of this energy, it essentially crippled the ship as it hovered, causing the captain to reach out for help by sending a distress signal. Another ship close by also picked up the distress signal, and being much closer than Octavio and Santiago, they approached the scene. The ship, the Black Web, was able to approach but simply watched on in astonishment, as there was little that the sailing vessel could do to combat a UFO. The captain of the Black Web, a man named Hector, then noticed a strange radio signal. He believed the signal picked up either came from the object, or was somehow connected to the object. The strong signal caused the radio's VU meters to spike past 30, and a tense silence followed. The story becomes a little unclear at this point, as it is sourced from old writings and improper translations, but appears the object left shortly after this radio signal was received. Octavio remained in contact with Alberto, the captain of the Mytilus II, as he continued north to Iquique and eventually the two struck up a friendship over the following year. Over this time, Octavio began to learn the details of Alberto's life. His original vessel was received on a loan from the CORFO, the government-run Chilean Development Corporation. 
In the 80s, economic turmoil hit Chile, and Alberto could no longer afford the payments, so he pirated his ship and headed south to find work as a smuggler. It was on the small coastal town of Kamichi, on the southern end of Big Chiloy Island, where Alberto first met Ernesto de la Fuente, whose story we talked about in episode two. De La Fuente introduced Alberto to a strange group of gringos. Quote, The gringos looked nothing like Americans. They were handsome. Tall beings with blonde hair and dressed in curious outfits. End quote. The group needed someone to run supplies to the remote island. In return, they promised Alberto they would liquidate his debts and rearrange his life. Alberto met with the group, and they agreed to hire him. As well as paying him, they outfitted his vessel with strange electrical equipment, the nature of which Alberto did not understand. There was a suspicion, however, that the equipment may have had something to do with the strange UFO that was attracted to the ship not long after this meeting. Either way, Alberto's life definitely was rearranged in one way or another by the group known as The Friendship. Porto Mont is the capital of the Los Lagos region of Chile sits at the northern point of various waterways that carve out the fjords and channels that continue on to the end of the continent. It sits as the gateway to Chilean Patagonia. The town itself is home to roughly 200,000 people and sits at the base of an active volcano. To the south is the Sea of Chiloy and to the southwest is Big Chiloy Island. To the east and southeast, the Andes continue, dividing Chilean and Argentinian Patagonia in half. The city itself is beautiful. The light breaks through the clouds in golden slices, illuminating various parts of the city at various times. The architecture fits in with the cold coastal setting wooden structures that would fit just as perfectly in New England as they do here. When darkness falls, a thin mist follows it, coming down from the surrounding peaks to sit ominously on the surface of the ocean. The city was founded in 1853 and named after the president of the time. It was a Chilean government effort to increase immigration to help settle the area. Porto Mont was specifically set up for German immigrants and was very successful. The German origins carry on today with many German-style restaurants and pubs, and the European style of architecture is apparent in many of the homes and churches. What brought me to Porto Mont is a strange synchronicity. For those not aware, synchronicity is a term that was first coined by pioneering psychologist Carl Jung and is used to describe a meaningful coincidence. 
An example of this actually occurred while writing this paragraph. While writing this, an unrelated video series was playing as background noise, something I do often when writing. As I began writing this paragraph, I looked up from my computer to see this quote up on the other screen, at the precise moment I was writing Carl Jung's name. Quote, When coincidences pile up in this way, one cannot help being impressed by them. For the greater the number of terms in such a series or the more unusual its character, the more improbable it becomes." End quote. Carl Jung. This is a good example exactly when I needed one, of the type of synchronicity that has persisted since I started my research. But the one that brought me to Porto Mont, Chile, to begin with, was the first synchronicity of this entire research project. In the earliest stages of my research, I came across an article about the Friendship Group and their alleged island, written by the paranormal researcher Micah Hanks. It is a simple but good overview of the case, and even briefly touches on the Colonia Dignidad and the possible connection to the Friendship. But the part that caught my attention was at the end of the article. Hanks brings up an English-language advertisement that was published in 2009 in El Laquihu, a newspaper that is published here in Puerto Mon. The advertisement said this, quote, To Friendship Island, I am the professional engineer whose home you visited in Sarasota, Florida about two years ago. You scared me because I didn't know who you were, but now I do. I would appreciate it if you would let me visit your home. Thank you. End quote. Sarasota, Florida. The words that caught my attention. My hometown is Sarasota, Florida. I grew up there. This advertisement implies not only a simple connection to my city with the friendship group, but that a member or members of the group have actually visited my city. This detail captured my curiosity and added just enough intrigue for me to pursue this case fully. The professional engineer is also a detail of note. Why would extraterrestrial beings be contacting a human engineer? I suppose there could be a number of reasons but I can certainly think of more reasons a Nazi submarine base would need an engineer. But the nature and number of synchronicities do lend itself to a more paranormal explanation. There have been a lot of minor synchronicities, like the quote appearing while writing. A further example of this has been apparent during this research project. I have been reading The Mothman Prophecies, a book by paranormal investigator John Keel, while doing this investigation. The reason for this is to observe the final result of a, a similar project, an in-depth investigation into a series of bizarre paranormal sightings. While doing so, Mothman and John Keel have been popping up in podcasts and on bookshelves here in Chile in surprising numbers. 
almost always just after I've done some reading. As well as strange coincidences appearing while reading. Here's an example of this. While reading a segment of the book, Keel noted that a large percentage of UFO contacts were born on September 6th. I immediately checked my phone to confirm what I had already thought. I was reading this chapter on September 6th. This could be perhaps pareidolia. Pareidolia is a common explanation when it comes to the paranormal. It is the idea that humans are pattern-recognizing animals and will find patterns even where there are none. The idea is, being that I'm reading the book, I am more aware of John Keel, so I'm noticing him more often, which is quite a reasonable explanation. But it doesn't quite apply for some of the more stranger synchronicities we've experienced. For the strangest one, we have to go back to Lake Colburn, which we described in episode 2. On the dried shores of the lake, I conducted an experiment I've tried a few times in the past. An idea has been put forth by several researchers, myself included, that the explanation behind paranormal activity is some yet-to-be-discovered brain activity. That the phenomenon is tied to our consciousness and is dependent on human observation. To investigate this idea, I've adapted hallucinogenic drugs into my paranormal investigation, testing the idea that altered brain chemistry can bring about paranormal events. I conducted one of these experiments at Lake Colburn. I myself, after conducting an hour-long meditation, took slightly less than a full tab of LSD. Unfortunately, due to the restrictive nature of these types of experiments, I'm not sure of the exact type or analog, or the precise dosage. My research assistant, Sinai, took a very small dose, slightly larger than what would be considered a microdose. While in separate locations on the lake, I quietly whispered to myself, Why this spot? Why are the UFOs coming here? Sinai was more than a hundred yards away, and there was no way she could have he heard me whisper to myself. Merely a few minutes before, the mood was jovial. Sinai was happy and in full-on laughter with a case of the giggles. But after I said the sentence quietly to myself, she became serious. She reported that she was experiencing strange auditory hallucinations. She was hearing voices all around the lake, speaking in an unknown language. I myself didn't hear anything, but I could tell what she was experiencing was very real for her. Tears were welling up in her eyes, and her speech became choked as she became more and more concerned. She insisted that we leave immediately. And with her in that state, I agreed. Once we were on the outer shores of the lake, she could no longer hear the voices and was slowly able to regain her calm. 
This might have been the closest we've come to contact yet. However, due to the nature of this experiment, the altered consciousness aspect of it, many researchers and listeners will dismiss this experiment and its results entirely. Luckily for those, we've been handed a more tangible piece of evidence. During the next day, we were going over photos taken from that previous day. In one photo, above my head, there is a small white orb hovering. It is odd in shape, and at first, I believed it to be perhaps the sun hidden behind the clouds. But after briefly observing the other photos, we quickly realized that it wasn't the sun, as it was not in that location in any of the other photos taken. Those photos were taken just before and after the photo with the orb. We did not see the orb while taking the photo, and upon closer examination of the photo, a small white cylinder can also be seen near the orb. I am not now and have never been convinced of photos of orbs, especially the ones that frequently appear on ghost hunting TV shows. Everyone knows the ones I'm talking about. The night vision camera picks up a piece of dust or an insect that reflects the light, and the show passes it off as evidence. Well, I can say that this photo is not that. It was taken at noon on a cloudy day, and no objects around could have caused the strange appearance. Perhaps it was an extremely strange one-off camera glitch, or some unknown form of light reflection. But given the context of the rest of the day's events, I found this piece of evidence very much worth mentioning. The next strange detail is the dreams. I don't often remember my dreams, but Sinai has great dream recall. This is coupled with the fact that her dreams are often premonitions. While staying in the coastal city of Valparaiso, Sinai had a series of dreams seemingly related to our project. The ones we will focus on here happen consecutively in the same night, one right after another. The first dream, Sinai was in a massive library. Large wooden bookshelves towered overhead, and the corridors seemed to stretch on forever. She was browsing books calmly when she felt a presence with her. She looked up to see a gray alien a little further down the corridor, staring back at her. The sighting made her extremely uneasy. She caught the feeling it was trying to communicate with her. Before understanding anything, her fear woke her. After this night, we spent a lot of time searching the various libraries of Chile, trying to find that location, perhaps a clue. No such clue was found. The next dream, however, was also bizarre. Being used to the occasional odd dream, she quickly fell back asleep after her gray alien sighting. 
This is when the second dream occurred. This time I was there with her, and we were out on the streets of Valparaiso. A UFO landed in front of us, and we boarded it. Flew us around the city, showing us various sights. She said I was doing what I would expect myself to do in this scenario. I was taking notes as rapidly as I could. She was nervous, but I was excited, trying to memorize as many details as I could. We were alone aboard the craft, and it seemed to move automatically. She recalled it all feeling very real. If it were real, however, I don't remember any of it, or the Chaz that was actually there wasn't me. But one detail was definitely unsettling. Sinai always sleeps curled up in the fetal position, preferably with as many blankets as possible. After this UFO dream, she awoke in a prone position, on her back, arms to her side, tucked in with one blanket. This is a detail that often occurs with people who experience claimed alien abductions. Synchronicities aside, Patagonia is a perfect place for any UFO investigator. It is a perpetual hotspot sitting beautifully on the edge of the world. And while UFOs seem to be spotted all up and down the length of Chile, the encounters in Patagonia, statistically speaking, seem to be of a much more personal nature. Rodrigo Funzelida, a sociologist by profession, but also the director of the AION, the OYON, a UFO research organization here in Chile, he had this to say during an interview with the EFE news agency. Quote, Patagonia is, without question, the area with the highest concentration of interesting cases, causing us as an organization to focus all of our efforts in this region. End quote. Notice his use of the word interesting, not necessarily the highest number of sightings, but the highest number of interesting cases. What does that mean? Well, he goes on to explain that since 1997, Patagonia has had a sharp increase in not just sightings, but reported cases of alien abductions. Quote, From that moment on, we have had the highest rate of abductions in Patagonia, some 2,000 kilometers south of the Chilean capital. Even the OVNI television series, produced by Televisión Nacional, we were able to quantify that 70% of the abductions included on the show have been recorded in this location, end quote. At the time of this interview, the Aeon Group had fully investigated six cases of supposed abduction and had three more cases waiting to be investigated. Quote, we have a strong team of specialists, a multidisciplinary one, made up of psychologists and psychiatrists with a goal of studying these people to ascertain their level of credibility. Their level of pathology is exceedingly low, end quote. 
He also went on to describe a few details of one of these bizarre cases. Quote, We have now received a report of a collective abduction in Porto Natales, in southern Chile, that is being investigated by experts in that area. We find it of interest, as it involves an entire family. End quote. He continued by saying, quote, First they saw a light appear. They lost consciousness. Upon awakening, there was a towering creature in front of them, with a huge light behind it, through which the entity ultimately entered. End quote. Many of these cases seem to share details of the famous Corporal Valdez case that we discussed in episode 2. The corporal, who walked off towards a strange light for a few minutes and returned with dense beard growth that he didn't have before his walk. The bright lights, the missing time, the strange audio effects all seem to appear again throughout the various cases. But most of these bizarre details are not only found in UFO cases. Most researchers that broach multiple paranormal topics begin to notice that a lot of these traits are shared. Missing time is a feature that is common in stories of fey folk, encounters with gnomes and elves, and other creatures of legend. What is known as the Oz Factor, the strange silent stillness type of auditory hallucination, is often reported in not only UFO cases, but sightings of yetis and wolfmen. What is called high strangeness seems to appear in all of these types of cases, almost without fail. This term covers a variety of exceedingly bizarre features that happened during and after a supposed paranormal sighting. Pioneering researcher Jacques Vallée described an example of this in a case where a stack of pancakes were found in the exact spot where they had believed a UFO had landed, a spot quite far from the nearest diner. This term also covers the bizarre stream of synchronicities that many researchers experience and that I have begun to experience myself during this case. These commonalities have led many researchers to the conclusion that whatever the causes of paranormal phenomenon, whether it's specters or little green men, it is facilitated by the same unknown mechanism. Whether it is a dormant psychic pathway within our own minds or a yet-to-be-discovered anomaly of physics, the idea is that there is a common mechanism that allows these strange events to occur. Let's go back to researcher Jacques Vallée to describe this idea a little further. Quote, I believe that the UFO phenomenon is one of the ways through which an alien form of intelligence, of incredible complexity, is communicating with us symbolically. There is no indication that it is extraterrestrial. Instead, there is mounting evidence that it has access to psychic powers we are, have not yet mastered or even researched. This is not simply a case of a few tales relating encounters between a few humans and strange creatures from the sky. This is an age-old and worldwide myth that has shaped our belief structures, our scientific expectations, and our view of ourselves.
I do not use the word myth here to mean something that is imaginary, but on the contrary, something that is true at such a deep level that it influences the very basic elements of our thoughts. End quote. So with that idea in mind, we headed into Patagonia. From Portamont, we headed south to the island of Big Chiloy. There are no bridges to the island. Cars, trucks, and buses all use the various ferry companies to transport goods and people to and from the island. The island is beautiful. A large portion is preserved as a national park. Several small towns dot the inner coast of the island, and tourism is one of the main industries for all of them. At the right time of year, penguins can be seen on the various small islands around the southern part. It takes about five hours to drive the entire length of the island, from Ancud in the north to Quillion in the south. We spent time in the center of the island in the city of Castro. It's a small town that sits over the Patagonian Bay and offers various day trips to the surrounding area. The yellow and purple church that sits at the center of the town is not easily forgotten. The houses are beautiful wooden structures of pastel colors that project a beautiful and classic image of a seaside town. There we discovered the vibrant and elaborate folklore that permeates the area. With that, we will take time in this episode to look at the other stories from Patagonia, not just UFO cases. What we'll find is that Patagonia is a land rich in traditional cultures, myths, and legends. Perhaps by analyzing the legends of the past, we can discover clues to how these alien legends of the future have formed. Nineteen sixty, a few months after the Argentine Navy failed to capture that mysterious submerged object, a disaster struck the other side of the continent. The Great Chilean Earthquake occurred. It was rated as a magnitude between nine point four and nine point six, and to this day is still the strongest earthquake ever recorded. The center of the quake was at Lumucao, but the nearby city of Valdivia was most affected. However, it was by no means the only place affected. The earthquake caused tsunamis all over the Pacific. In Chile, the waves reached heights of 82 feet, or 25 meters. A large wave traveled across the Pacific and left the city of Hilu, Hawaii, in ruins and 61 people dead. Tidal waves of 35 feet, or 11 meters, were reported in the Philippines and in Japan, 10,000 kilometers from the source. The force of the quake also caused the Chilean volcano to erupt the following day. The death toll is debated, but the higher end suggests close to 7,000 people died as a result of the quake. The damage was done by the quake and subsequent tsunamis and landslides were estimated at the time to be around $800 million, a 
about $6.8 billion in today's money, if you calculate for inflation. But there was one death attributed to the quake that did not quite belong. That was the death of a five-year-old boy named Jose Luis Panicure. He was a member of a small and very isolated coastal village, Kalufu. The people living here were a subset of the Mapuche natives, the Lafkenches. After the community was struck by one of the tsunamis that was raging across the Chilean coast, an elder demanded a sacrifice to appease what they believed to be angry nature spirits known as Nin. They believed these Nin were responsible for the disaster. The young boy was selected as his mother was away working in Santiago. The story came to the attention of the authorities because of a nearby rancher who claimed that two of his horses were stolen and sacrificed alongside the boy. And then the horses were eaten as part of the ritual. Two people were arrested and charged with the crime, but they were released after two years. The judge presiding over the case had this to say of the act. They, quote, acted without free will, driven by an irresistible natural force of ancestral tradition, end quote. And that is the point of this story. I have not seen anything to suggest that these types of sacrifices continue to this day. But 1960 was less than 60 years ago showing that these cultural beliefs were still fairly successful in carrying on into the modern world. These beliefs continue to persist and adapt along with the modern world, making Patagonia a location of truly strange and interesting folklore. Patagonia is covered in waterways. There are thousands of various bodies of water, from lakes and ponds to channels and rivers. Waterfalls cascade down from frozen peaks, and unbelievably blue water flows gracefully over glaciers. It is no surprise that these dominant geographical features play heavily into the folklore and urban legends of the area. I found reference to 39 different lakes that are said to contain various types of creatures or lake monsters in Patagonia. Unknown shapes are seen in the water, many of which are reminiscent of the famed Loch Ness Monster. This number 39 doesn't even include the long list of nautical deities that were and still are worshipped in various locations around Patagonia today. And we'll discuss these more in the next episode. With the two lists combined, it would appear that Patagonia by far has the highest concentrated number of aquatic cryptids in the world. One of the most famous Patagonian lake monsters and certainly the most Loch Ness-like in appearance, is the Nahuleto, 
Nanahuleto is claimed to be a native legend. The first written mentions of the creature were found in 1880. In 1922, the Toronto Globe published the first widely read sighting of the creature. The witness was one George Garrett, and he said that he witnessed this, quote, an object which appeared to be 15 or 20 feet in diameter, and perhaps 6 feet above the water. After a few minutes, the monster disappeared. On mentioning my experience to my neighbors, they said the Indians often spoke of immense water animals they had seen from time to time. End quote. The monster jumped in popularity in 1960 when the Argentinian Navy failed to catch that submerged object that had invaded their waters. People were quick to recall the legend in relation to the mysterious large objects that evaded capture suggesting that the invading subs were actually some long-forgotten sea creature. The next large flap of sightings occurred in 1976 and 1979, with the largest number of sightings in the month of February during those years. It was sightings of several different witnesses on several different occasions. One witness, Achilles Lamfrey, saw it from about a mile away and described the creature as such, quote, an enormous animal with a dark back and long neck, with a snake-like head, end quote. Another witness, Hilda Romble, saw the creature surface in 1978. Of the sighting, she said this, quote, something odd was crossing the waters at considerable speed leaving a great wake. Seemed like a swan's neck. Then it turned towards the coast and took on the appearance of a post. And then it disappeared in the midst of a great stirring of water. End quote. Sightings seem to have several consistent details. The long swan-like neck is reported in almost all, almost all sightings of the, of the Nahuleto. The reported size of the creature stays the same, with almost all reports about 5 meters, or 16 feet in length. As with the Loch Ness Monster, cryptozoologists were quick to point out the plesiosaur connection. The idea is that the Nahuleto and the creature at Loch Ness share all the physical attributes of a plesiosaur, an aquatic dinosaur that was believed to have gone extinct about 66 million years ago. Cryptozoologists believe that this is not the case, that a small population of these creatures still persist and appear in lakes across the world from time to time. This recently has been found to be a suspect explanation, however, because paleontologists now believe that the neck bones of a plesiosaur would not have allowed for them to put their heads above the water in the swan-like fashion that is reported in these cases. Other researchers have suggested another, more paranormal explanation. This is the idea of a time slip. The idea is that through some unknown physics or mental function, 
that people accidentally fall into other times or timelines. Its basis is the idea of nonlinear time, that we only perceive time as moving forward, which is a concept that is still highly debated today, with intelligent minds on both sides of the conversation. Despite the official standing of nonlinear time, the phenomenon of time slips are widely reported in the paranormal research field. People suddenly finding themselves in strange, old-timey surroundings. The buildings are different. The people are dressed strangely. A common and favorite detail of mine is when people try to buy things while in the past, and the store clerk doesn't understand the money that they try to pay with. There is a small school of thought that believes time slips into the future could account for a good portion, or possibly all, of UFO encounters. I'm not convinced of this, but I find it an intriguing possibility. What I am sure of is that the manipulation of time is a common element in many of UFO cases. Again, Corporal Valdez's case in Episode 2. The inverse of the time slip is used as an explanation for other paranormal events. Full-body apparitions and ghost cases are sometimes thought to be a person from the past time-slipping into the future. The same idea applies to lake monsters like the Nahuleto. A plesiosaur somehow slips into our timeline for a few moments and disappears back again, taking most evidence of their existence in our timeline with them. But this explanation does not fit with every strange creature that fills the waters of Chile. Many times the creatures do not fit a historical description at all. One of these creatures is the Curo. Its full name is El Curo de Agua, the water hide, and it certainly doesn't resemble anything seen now or before within our planet's history. The creature resembles what its name suggests. It looks like a large, splayed-out cowhide. It is said to have eyes that sit on stalks that protrude out from its flat body. The edges of its body are surrounded by sharp spines or claws that are used to grab a hold of its prey. A researcher in 1965 was relayed this story by a man about an attack on his friend around a lake known as Lake Califuquin. Here is his account, quote, When that disgrace happened to that fellow Ramel, I was still very young. He had disappeared in the water, which was hard to believe. Something like that had never happened before. His horse rolled and threw him along the shore of the lake. Ramel fell on top of something that resembled a hide that was laying by the edge of the water. That quickly rolled him up and took him away with a rolling motion into the lake. End quote. Now, some have tried to compare this creature to various types of prehistoric stingrays, but it is fairly safe to say that the animate cowhide with eyes on stalks doesn't share much resemblance to stingrays, 
perhaps with the exception of overall shape. And this is only one of many examples of an extremely diverse group of aquatic urban legends and mythology. More on this in the next episode. But another well-known and beloved type of cryptid is also seen in the area. Some researchers call them wild men, but most Americans know the creature as Bigfoot. Just like the legends of the Native Americans in North America, the tribes of Patagonia have also described encounters with our large furry friend. The Alakaloof tribe have a legend of a feared creature by the name of Moano, or Snowman. The creature shares a resemblance to the Yeti of the Himalayas. The legend says that the snowman's footprints can be found on the surfaces of glaciers and snow-capped peaks of southern Patagonia. The tribe specifically mentions finding the footprints from time to time, just like the various Bigfoots of North America. The creature is also being described as relatively peaceful, only attacking those who enter its reclusive territory, something that's often parroted with the North American Bigfoot stories. Further north, the Mumpuchu, whose human sacrifice we discussed earlier, have similar versions of the Bigfoot mythos. Chaludo was said to be a frightening and large hairy creature, but is thought not to be particularly dangerous. The Carcancho was said to be a large group of similar hairy creatures, standing on the average over six and a half feet tall. It is said that the only evidence they leave behind is their footprints in the snow. Back south, on both sides of the southern tip of the Americas, the Yagan and the Silk Nam tribes share similar, if not more, malicious versions of the wild man legend. The Silk Nam's creature was called Hashi, and it shares most of its traits with the Yagan's Hanash. A one Reverend Thomas Bridges described the creature as such, quote, a sort of demented or wild man of the forests, similar to man in shape, living alone or in groups, but without wife or children. They were always stalking, trying to come upon men, women, or children to kill them. End quote. In 1833, Charles Darwin was aboard the HMS Beagle, captained by one Robert Fitzroy. They arrived in the Terra del Fuego region of the southern tip of the Americas, and there they were intrigued by the wild man legends. Darwin wrote this in his journal, quote, What the bad wild men were has always appeared to me most mysterious. I should have thought they were thieves who had been driven from their tribe, but other obscure speeches made me doubt this. I have sometimes imagined that most probable explanation was that they were insane. End quote. 
The whole crew of the Beagles seemed to be interested in the legend. Captain Fitzroy commented on the creatures as well. Quote, A great black man is supposed to be always wandering about the woods and mountains, who cannot be escaped. End quote. His pilot, William Lowe, also felt the legend was worth recording. He wrote this, quote, They believe in an evil spirit called Yakima, who they think is able to do all kinds of mischief, cause bad weather, famine, illnesses. He is supposed to be like an immense black man. End quote. Note the descriptions lean away from the furry beings and strange footprints. Darwin definitely leans towards the idea that they are exiled humans. I tend to agree with this conclusion when it comes to a lot of these Bigfoot cases. I think the possibility that people are living off the grid, wearing animal skins for warmth, are mistaken for what is commonly called Bigfoot. But even still, the more human creatures discussed are said to have magic powers and echo many similar boogeyman-type legends. The tribes to the north certainly lean to a more non-human explanation of the creature as well. Could they be humanoids of a past time, time slipping into our present? Or perhaps the reason all these strange creatures of different variety appear in Patagonia is for another reason. If we live in a multiverse, as many nowadays suggest, perhaps for whatever reason, Patagonia is an area where infinite universes collide and overlap in brief and awe-inspiring moments. Perhaps it's something about the sprawling, untouched nature, or special minerals that can be found in cliff sides and in the various waterways. Whatever it is, Many researchers have suggested that various areas of the planet are unique for this reason. These window areas, as they are sometimes called, are places where the veil between reality is thin. And occasionally, other realities leak into ours. Perhaps this could explain the creatures who seemingly come from different times and perhaps explain the ones that claim to come from other worlds. Friends or Fiends is written, directed, and produced by me, Chaz Pilkey. You can find more of my work at chazofthedead.com. Special thanks to my research assistant, Karen. This series is dedicated to my dog, Chewy. He wouldn't have understood any of this. He was a dog. Next week, in our final episode, we search for the Friendship Island. sorry for mispronunciation.